0: Uh, we're actually excited and about this week's uh, this week's offering, especially because um, we're going to continue this conversation uh, today, looking at hypocrisy. And yesterday we had some very interesting discussions uh, about uh, hypocrisy without using the word um, hypocrisy. Uh, I'm Tyree Emerson I am uh, the founder uh, of one of the founders of the Cutting Edge Clergy Caucus. I passed the First Baptist Church of Inslee. This is Dr. Kirk Clark, uh, our president and uh, also founder, who is pastor of Sardis uh, Baptist Church, and the soon-to-be uh, Dr. Ramon Billingsley, uh, who is also one of the founders of Cutting Edge and literally the right arm of Dr. Clark here at Sardis. And so we are here today to, again to try to have this discussion about hypocrisy. And we first episode we really kind of gave an overview. Second episode we uh, talked about hypocrisy in the church. Well, guess what? Today is hypocrisy in the pulpit. <laughs> uh, and we and, and we want to have these discussions because we believe that if we can have these discussions, we'll be able to really help a lot of clergymen. A lot of clergy women will be able to help a lot of churches kind of get to a place where they'll be able to have a greater impact on the kingdom of God. And so uh what I want to do, I want to kind of open it up um uh, with a question. Um and I think I think it's a very uh important question. Um why Why does hypocrisy exist in the church? Namely, in the pulpit. Why does hypocrisy exist in the church and really namely in the pulpit? And the reason why I'm asking that question is because I, 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 I think churches tend to take on the characteristic of their pastor. I don't. I don't care what church it is. Churches tend to take on the characteristic of their pastor. If their pastor is uh, serious about justice work, guess what? They're gonna be serious about justice work. If their pastor is serious about uh, fighting abortion, church is gonna have a heart fight abortion. If the if the pastor heart is hypocritical, then you have a lot of people who are hypocritical. And so I wanted to raise that question in the initial get go because, uh, you know, and I think it's free ranging, you know, because we've been talking about ethos, we've been talking about, you know, I share with you all the whole thing on pathos and logos. And when you start looking at it, uh, these are Greek words that mean certain things and it's carried out in ministry real time. So, I want to kind of lay it out there and then we'll do like we normally do, just let it naturally, uh, organically morph from there. Because I I think that we got a lot to do um, on this topic. And then also, um, you know, we'll build on it on what are we reading? Because, you know, all of us are reading, we're reading pretty much the same books uh, and we're identifying new resources that will be able to help deal with uh, ministry, be able to help people navigate through this. And we will also uh, slide in there the new Supreme Court justice uh, that was sworn in under the cover of night. Not in a day when everybody can see, but at night. And then done by Uncle Clarence. So we got a few things that we need to talk about, especially being that we're only seven days out from uh, the election, and so uh, let me let me quiet down at this point because you know we want to try to entertain that question and then just kind of let it go from there. Repeat question, one more time. question is why why is there hypocrisy in the church? Kind of looking at what we dealt with last week, namely in the pulpit. Why in the pulpit? Why in the pulpit?
1: Um, my response to that would be the initial response will be that um, there's a wide um, range of reasons mm-hmm. for hypocrisy being present within local churches as churches take on the character or sometimes even the Catholic church of <laughs> um, pastor, clergy, cleric and that is because of one reason in my estimation is because uh, pastors really know that if they really um, articulated or expressed um, in our sense what we have learned in school and seminary that that would be a great deal of pushback. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we are sometimes reluctant uh, to be uh, who we know that we need to be. So that approach is taken gradually. But I'm hopeful because of the training that we've gotten that we are able to inform our congregations about old ideologies that are not consistent with the Word of God Mm -hmm. uh, possibly being replaced. A uh, mentor of mine, Dr. John Ray, John Ray Youngblood, said that uh, if pastors really preached what they thought and knew and believed, a whole lot of pulpits would be taken.
0: Mm.
1: But I think that we're moving to a place now where we are being forced uh, to live our, our authentic, genuine selves uh, in the utterance of our own unique, genuine, and Afrocentric. Mm-hmm. Voice. Mm-hmm. Um, also, don't get it mistaken that a lot of our parishioners take on the character of other people that they listen to the most. Mm. Right? It, that could be a non clergy person, that could be a non um, Christian person. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you talk about the overall dynamic, of hypocrisy being within the context of the church, I think we're moving towards addressing that head-on with the likelihood of there coming uh, a new model.
0: Right.
2: Two things come to mind uh, with respect to this question about why hypocrisy in the church and in particular in the pulpit. I think the question presupposes that there is some kind of expectation that is Mm. Um, pre-hypocrisy. And it assumes that Those who are committing hypocrisy know what that standard is. Mm -hmm. Um, And often in the pulpit and in the church, that's not necessarily the case. Because most of our parishioners are uh, biblically unlearned. Um, Some people will say biblically illiterate. It's the same thing. Um, Literate is a very strong term. It's a very pointed term. Mm -hmm. It's a very specific term. Um, And in this sense, it's not necessarily derogatory. It's just saying there are some deficiencies when it comes to knowing what thus says the Lord. Mm -hmm. Um, But even taking this a step further with respect to the pulpit, I think oftentimes Clergy handle truth in such a way that they themselves feel as if they are exempt from the same truth that they are preaching. Mm. That preaching, what it means to be in covenant relationship with God, assumes that they don't have the same covenant claims on their life. Mm. I'm thinking in particular about the story of Moses uh, in Exodus chapter 4 when he has this revelatory experience with God in Midian. And he's in this black region, this Mm -hmm. black culture, and he's having to leave that same black culture to go to a very different black culture in Mm -hmm. Egypt. Mm -hmm. to deal with this issue of liberation. But what's fascinating in Exodus 4 is that as Moses is on his way to Egypt to deliver this social justice message, the text says that the Lord tries to kill him. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. God had given him a claim to make to Pharaoh Uh, Had given him a charge, a commission. Mm -hmm. And that night, the Lord tries to kill him. And Mm -hmm. it is his wife, Zipporah, that is able to act as an intercessor, if you will, um, and using blood rituals in that of circumcision to stave off the attack. Very odd Mm -hmm. story, very uh, difficult story. interpretive wise Mm -hmm. but it does raise the question about moses i mean god gives him um a charge a word to carry of liberation and on the way god tries to kill him and so it does raise the question because here again moses has still has some things in his own life that hasn't Mm -hmm. really been dealt with Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so um oftentimes clergy will attempt to handle the word without really dealing with their own ethical character or one's own ethical character Mm -hmm. or ethos or issues Mm -hmm. that will prevent one from being faithful and being uh, reputable with respect to uh, congregants as well as the wider community. Um, So I think the question itself, Forces us to think about pre hypocritical thinking Mm. and that standard that is assumed to be known
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
2: by both church and clergy as we're talking about this issue of hypocrisy in the pulpit. And lastly, I think also it goes back to the issue of identity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because once a person is Convinced of what their core identity really is because your core identity, you can't lose that. Right. Um, you never should put your identity in anything that you can lose, whether that's a church, a pulpit, a house, a spouse, a car, an investment. Hmm. If that defines you and if that can be taken away from you, then that will alter your, your identity. But your core identity is who you are as a human being mm-hmm. and also as a person of faith. That can never be taken away. Mm-hmm. So I think oftentimes one's, I want to say innate identity is often exchanged for gold, silver, money, Thing, which thus prevents the need for authentic- authenticity, the need for a core identity,
1: mm-hmm.
2: which thus moves one over into the realm of hypocrisy, and oftentimes with hypocrisy, because hypocrisy is like. It's like eating a good pasta dish. You eat so much of it, you can't stop. Mm -hmm. it it is as if you are so lured by hypocrisy that it can be very difficult to get back. And then you look up, and you're unable to recognize what hypocrisy is.
0: Hmm. So so you basically lose yourself... uh, You basically lose who you are in something that you probably are not.
2: Absolutely. And when what you are not becomes who you are because you have validated what you are not, (laughs) Hmm. then you find yourself in a black hole, an abyss, a bottomless pit. Oh, you mean spiraling out of control? You're in
0: a sunken place.
2: Unable to grasp any kind of prop uh-huh. to help you regain your footing.
0: Okay, so in looking at hypocrisy, looking at you know losing your identity, looking at because you mentioned this idea of ethos where we get our idea of ethics, this this idea of your character basically who you are when people aren't watching um and considering what you know kurt said about it's oftentimes not the pastor it's who people have chosen to listen to choosing who to listen to i heard frank reed say it like this whoever cds you have the most of that's your pastor it doesn't matter what church you go to, it doesn't matter who you say is your pastor. Basically, whoever uh who who whoever influences you is who mantle you will take up. And looking at the pulpits across the nation, looking at the pulpits across the nation and looking at the fact that there are many pulpits that are uh, that are occupied by entertainers. Uh, you know, kind of kind of looking at it as those who have not taken uh, scholarship seriously, they've not trusted in you know, reading people uh, that don't think like them. You know, one of the things that you you know you all know about me and those that are watching that know me, know that I tend not to lean heavily on Eurocentric interpretations of the Bible. Mm-hmm. I, I try to stray away from that because uh, I find it to be very hypocritical. Mm-hmm. Knowing that that's the case, I really kind of understanding that. Uh, uh, my child's godfather recommended a book by W.A. Criswell. It's like, I ain't reading Chris Well, man. Dude's a hypocrite. He said, no, you need to read it. So it comes from a credible source to tell me to read it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I shared some stuff with y'all this morning that he said that that, that lives in the land of hypocrisy. That here you are supposed to be standing and declaring the gospel. You're supposed to be declaring literally the oracles of God that the pastor, the preacher stands to reveal the mysteries of the unknown so the unknown can be known. Hmm. And instead of going after to deal with the unknown, you spend your whole week going to meetings and going to events and getting your name out there, what he considers to be the slap on the back uh, events. Where you go and you slap somebody, hey man, great job, and you, you know you, you're engaging in that because you wanna, you know, get where they are. You wanna do what they do instead of spending time in your study, preparing for what you say you've been called to do.
2: Right,
0: and then Sunday comes and you have nothing. And he quoted, uh, he quoted a white supremacist who was a great preacher. Mm-hmm. I mean, they got him. I mean, they absolutely exist. They can be great preachers and absolutely hardcore racists and white supremacists. Yeah, okay. Robert G. Lee.
2: <laughs>
0: Robert G. Lee who, uh, who is, who's well known in Southern Baptist circles made the statement to young preachers that you cannot drink skim milk every day and preach cream on Sunday.
2: Uh-huh.
0: How important is the study how important is the preparation period cuz you know we all been taught that a call to ministry is a call to preparation it's not a call to the pulpit it's a call to preparation how important is the study in the ethos of the clergy and how important does how important does the ethos of the clergy impact the ethos of the congregation? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, so, if I'm able to respond to your questions um, in order, I think the importance of the ethos of the clergy matters a great deal because um it says to whom you are wanting to be validated by Uh. or accepted by. Mm. So sometimes clergy only do what has been uh, largely, uh, not profiteered, but not yet probably that word too, but largely accepted within the domain of popular preaching, so they do only what popular preaching is seen to have been um, successful at. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we have people in our communities who are hurting because we uh, so quickly uh, just uh, ski across the surface of issues that... Um, deeply impact and hurt all communities. Mm-hmm. And listen, the crazy part about that is too there are members of the church itself who have appropriated this kind of listening yeah. or this hearing right. of what popular preaching is mm-hmm. at the risk and sacrifice of their own safety mm-hmm. and sense of Wholesomeness and well-being, right? right? Right. If now I love every aspect of Black Church um, experience, mm-hmm. but I don't want to forego having my heart addressed mm-hmm. when I need my heart addressed mm. um, at the expense of just being simply entertained,
0: right? Yeah, right.
1: By rhyme by alliterations, by uh, usage, uh, uh, by use of rhetorical um, uh, skill. Yeah. Now,
0: talk about
1: what needs to be talked about.
0: <laughs>
1: right? And whether or not you shut it down is irrelevant.
0: Yeah. My right? goodness.
1: Because I think that Medea and Daddy were right when they said, listen, a piece of good meat Make his own, <laughs> you know what I mean. In terms of using one of the sayings of our community, yeah, but the church, and I, I, I see some brothers and sisters, and they think good church is um, he was able to um, elicit my emotional response, hoping, and I'm able to enjoy that. What he has shared, or she has shared with you, nothing of value to help you deal with systemic oppression mm. and racism that exists and that is a part of the
0: fiber, right. fiber right.
1: of our day and
2: age long time. Mm. Mm. Ooh, that's so rich, Dr. Clark. <laughs> that is so rich. Um, as you were talking, I'm talking about the importance of the ethos of the clergy in preparation. Um, and, and preaching moment as you were talking Dr. Clark I thought about an Old Testament narrative and I y'all have to forgive me if I'm always uh, referring to the Old Testament but that is my field of study I've spent the last whew, 10 plus years um, reading it, teaching it translating it so um, plus it's the it's the first Bible, the real Bible. <laughs> uh, I'm thinking about this issue of true prophet versus false prophet. Um, and I'm, I'm concretizing those terms in the story of Micaiah ben imlah. Oh my, yeah. In 1 Kings chapter 22. That's my favorite story. Because I think this issue of ethos and preparation go hand in hand in this narrative. Because here you have King Jehoshaphat wrestling with a, um, a, a political issue that has ramifications um, for his administration mm. as well as for the nation and the question is Shall I go up to Ramul Gilead? Mm-hmm. That's the question, but this king has enough sense to know mm-hmm. that that's a decision that he needs to weigh among uh, policy makers mm-hmm. um his uh department of defense, but also his spiritual community. I'm talking about those like the Paula White, although they are in this story- mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um but it's mighty interesting that he's wrestling with this question, but there have already been kings' aides who have gathered about 400 prophets together
1: mm-hmm.
2: to wrestle with this question. And the, and, and, the, and the answer is yes, go ahead and go. And there seems to be no kind of ethical concern for uh, the king's sense of responsibility for the lives that he is leading uh, there seems to be no kind of concern from these prophets about how this will negatively affect mm-hmm. the nation. Mm-hmm. It's all about giving the king what he wants. It's all about tickling the king's fancy because at the end of the day, these are prophets of the empire who always have to remain loyal to the empire. And that happens to be their ethos. mm It is antithetical to the character of God. And so as he is wrestling with the question, he realizes that the answer seems right, but there's something else perhaps that could be missing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so he calls for another prophet. Is there another one that I can inquire of the Lord? Is there someone else who has been um, uh, uh, shut away in their study, really listening to what God has to say and not necessarily spending all day on the golf course or all day rubbing elbows with politicians? Mm-hmm. But it, is there someone that is intentional about their preparation? And in the words of Dick Dodge in the movie Distinguished Gentlemen, always having their ear to the ground. Mm to hear the heartbeat of God. Yeah, yeah there's one, his name Micaiah Ben Imla but he doesn't always say anything good. See, that's that's Micaiah's character. I don't like that. Because it. see, Ma- Micaiah <laughs> Ben Imla knows at the end of the day, his words have an ethical character. Yep. And the moment he disseminates those words, it affects the lives of people. He can't be reckless With his words because he's a prophet. He has a national platform. Yep. Y'all read between the lines. Yep. (laughs) He can't be reckless. He can't be uh, divisive for the sake of divisiveness. Mm -hmm. So Micaiah, they call for him. Mm Mm-hmm. But his reputation was already out. If you call Micaiah, he's he's well prepared. He studies. So he's going to bring the word. (laughs) He's going to teach you. And what does Micaiah do? He He, says, I only speak when the Lord has spoken.
0: Wow. But you know. Notice
2: he's not manufacturing sermons, churning them out like degree meals. My goodness. To keep people happy and to stay on the road. He's not doing that. Oh, my. He's reserving his energy and he's reserving his. Devadarim, his words, Man. for such a time as this. And the ethical character of Micaiah ben Imlah is not only the words that he cultivates and receives and disseminates, but it's also the ethos of the kind of courage that it takes to stand up against a king to say, this is what the Lord has said. Or to stand yeah, up right. against empire, I've got the word. I'm not going to be hypocritical and be like these 400 prophets, these white evangelicals or, or, or some of these um, uh, black clergy folks who are bought out by internalized racism or who own the payroll for the, um, for the uh, <laughs> seemingly residual income or currency of white supremacy. On white ideology. Mm. But what does he do? He has the courage to say, if it cost me my life, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, no one will be able to question the ethical character of my being and the ethical character of my word. So you take your risk and go on up to Ramoth Gilead, but I'm gonna tell you what's gonna happen. It's gonna be an utter disaster.
0: Yep. But that's that's after. He said after the guard goes and gets him, he said, Now everybody has spoken favorably
2: yeah. of the king. Oh yeah, everybody got him up like this.
0: And and <laughs> and that was when he said, I can only say what the Lord tells me to say. But when he gets before the king, he said, Oh King Leo, <laughs> you shall have great success. And the king says, How many times I gotta tell you not to lie to me? What's gonna happen? Yeah. Here you go. You go up there, you're gonna get killed. Yeah, that's it. And if I didn't, and if that one God talking,
2: then you come back, then so be it. And the amazing thing about that <laughs> is the is the rhetorical strategy of the prophet. Oh man. Because oh, the, man. Reznor talks about rhetorical strategies all the time. Yeah. Paul Scott Wilson talks about rhetorical strategies for preaching because he knows that going before the king could cost him his life. Although he's not concerned about his life, but yet he is. So he uses this rhetorical strategy to to get the king's attention, to lure him in, and he once he, once he has him. <laughs> see, see, and, and, and one more thing, and see, and the and reason why Jehoshaphat kept picking at him uh-huh. is because Micaiah Ben laws ethos was already solidified. It was, it was, and see, and see that
0: that's the <laughs> reason why being a hypocrite. <laughs> makes no sense yeah because as a as a hypocrite uh, you're going to be exposed yeah. it, it's only a matter of time before your lies catch up to you before your swindling gets discovered before you finally come to a place this idea of ethos isn't what matters to the hypocrite. The hypocrite specializes in pathos. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's, that's where the, hip, the hypocrite mm-hmm. lives in, in pathos where we get the word pathology. Yeah. So there's a neurotic condition going on mm-hmm. in some individuals who only live by this idea that I got to find a way to relate to this person, yeah. and when the pulpit and when the church is more concerned with relating mm-hmm. with you instead of relating the word of God yeah. to you, I mean, there's a there's a model, yeah. That 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 rhetorical piece, hmm. that that rhetorical piece has been mastered oftentimes in black pulpits. Yeah. yeah. That we don't call the name unless we unless God tells us say their name. Yeah. You'll say we y'all know what I'm talking about, right. and other folks will know. Some folks that are not in the in the club mm-hmm. are clueless. Yeah. But what we find is that this idea that you can relate to somebody—how low must you go? What must you engage in in order to try to relate to people that you've been sent to to move them from where they are and instead of moving them from where they are you've gone down with them and now you can't come back up. One of the things that John Kenny told us at Virginia Union was that you teach where you want them to be. Mm -hmm, mm Dr. Myers talked about that if you want an educated congregation, you need to have an educated pulpit. Hmm. That if you want a church that is on the edge of doing some magnificent things, you got to have a pastor that's willing at times to put their neck on the line. Yeah. And instead of us engaging in an activity to move people forward, we decide that we're going to try and get them to relate to us. So this idea of ethos is this idea that you would have a particular character and people will come with you because of that character. Pathos is that I'm going to uh, become like you. Okay, I'm going to go and get a haircut just like you. And yet I got a bald spot growing in the middle of my head. But I'm going to try and get a haircut like you because I want you to like me. Or... I'm 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 going to go hang out with these group of people even though I know that they don't st- that here you go you a preacher you a preacher that don't study you don't read you don't prepare and you want to hang out with a bunch of preachers that do mm-hmm. that's not logical mm-hmm. that's not logical and then the idea of logos you know you mm-hmm. know folks are always quick you know and where big you know, in the okay. beginning was the word. And the, listen, mm-hmm. this idea of logos mm-hmm. is to appeal to people through logic. Mm-hmm. It's logic, mm-hmm. and Aristotle comes out with these these things called the three agreements yeah. that if you're able to persuade somebody, yeah. because that's that's what we engage in as preachers, as pastors. Yeah. We engage in the art of persuade and persuade you to change your life. We use the word of God, the logic. Here, Here's the logic. Yeah. Now we tell you, hey, I used to be just like you, where you are, pathos. And then the ethos is, but I'm not there now because this is who I am and I'm not willing to change it. And so what happens is that we get into places and instead of us living in a way to persuade people, uh-huh. they have a greater persuasion model that convinces us that maybe we just need to be like this on Sunday,
2: hmm. yeah. Yeah.
0: and 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 so I, I I think I think we probably need to wrestle with some of this because for for people that are watching, you know, we got our you know sharing going on. You got or you got you know we got the sharing going on, but we got individuals that need to really sit down and wrestle with this identity question. Who? who are you going to be? Coming out of prison to go and talk to Joseph. Yeah. (laughs) The prophet already knew who he was. Yeah. Sitting in prison. I don't like him. He never says anything good about me. Well, maybe because ain't nothing good in you. (laughs) Maybe maybe it's because everything you've done, you've (laughs) done for your own individual purposes and now you're about to discover that God Gonna deal with you now. The backdrop of that story is this God has a meeting in heaven,
2: yeah.
0: And God has his meeting. God said, "Uh, uh, Who am I going to send to go and deal with this situation? So, a lying spirit says, I'll go and I'll be a lie in the mouth of his prophets. (laughs) See, 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 if you look at the backdrop, look at the backstory. Yeah, God allowed the lie to go because the regime. Had to go. That's right, and that's something people don't oh, want to talk about. I see that. I see it. You see it, right? See it. You see it. <laughs> that God ain't got no problem letting a person lie nineteen over nineteen thousand times <laughs> over something that you don't need to lie about, but you're trying to appeal pathos because yeah. you have now become a pathological liar. Yeah. I ain't gotta call no names. Yeah. That's that's part of that rhetoric. I ain't got to say a whole lot, but that's what we're wrestling with. That's what we're dealing with. And as preachers, as pastors, and in some cases as prophets, Mm -hmm. the danger of being a hypocrite renders your prophetic voice useless.
1: I think, too, I think, too, you know, the call to ministry as a call to preparedness or preparation uh, that causes us to be a likely candidate for uh, the acceptance of community and also our acceptance of God's work for our lives is major. Mm. And when you understand in depth the degree to which both of those dynamic dynamics have the potential of transforming somebody's life, you want to be prepared. But at the same time, you want to be of great value and use to the community mm-hmm. you are accepted by, right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes the finessing of language as a way to employ what's popular. <clears throat> as he said, oh, King live forever. He said, no, just cut cut it straight with me, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So sometimes uh, sometimes God will allow you to be a part of somebody else's environment mm-hmm. for a deeper purpose than mm. to fulfill the same old rote kind of activity, the ineffective uh, behavior and practices that they've always gotten. I think, you know, that's been this big old turn away from church. And I thank God that I think that this COVID pandemic age and era has allowed both the church itself primarily to reconsider and to rethink how ministry shall be performed Mm-hmm. and pursued, right? Yeah. Uh, people are wanting real-life responses, I mean, real-life answers mm. to all of their anxieties, all mm-hmm. of their angst, all of their issues, mm-hmm. and sometimes by just putting a little uh, sweetener <laughs> on somebody's <laughs> issue. Mm-hmm. You know, on their pathology, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Appealing to the uh, emotion of the person ain't enough to get that person the kind of consciousness that he or she needs in order to, you know. I think sometimes, and I'll, I'll end this, I think sometimes preachers want people to be so dependent upon them yep. mm-hmm. that they fail to carry within those people their own sense of independence on how to live, right? Yep. You know, these, uh, the, the inverse of that is <laughs> preachers too can be groupies.
0: Oh my. Oh yeah, yeah. You think so?
1: Yeah. I mean, they will attach themselves yeah. to, you know, the public uh, appeal of people who think that, you know, this is what it takes. But I would hate to go home and be with God huh. and uh, meet with God and never feel like I have fulfilled my role mm-hmm. as a messenger of the Lord. hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To help people to think. He allowed us to go to school to, to learn, right? I always say you would never go to a shade tree mechanic.
0: That's right.
1: Yeah. To get your tooth pulled. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fly, right? no, you have to go somewhere where you are assured <laughs> that this person has properly taken advantage of the training that was required as a result of your call. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Preachers are sometimes... In this struggle, do I be pop? Do am I to be popular, or am I to give myself to the work that may not result in popularity? Mm. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. And and you learn a lot mm. about <clears throat> clergy based on people they like to listen to. Um, based on <laughs> people they like to emulate um, I'm always fascinated by that, and generally mm-hmm. there's always some some of what they like the person that they like to listen to in them um, and I'll just say that in a <laughs> in a neutral way uh, but I want to go back to this issue of preparation and then I want to shift over to lagos mm-hmm because, I, you know, I asked, raised the question to myself, what is preparation, um, and is it a one-time thing? <clears throat> um, and so for me, preparation is really a lifestyle. I think it is a mm. mode of being mm. where one makes oneself constantly available to God in order to hear what God is saying to that proclaimer so that that proclaimer can then in turn disseminate those same words to the masses. Mm. And so I think practically what that looks like is of course we talked about getting training and a certificate program, or going to school, but then also developing the habit of reading. And that is one thing that I think black preachers and I'm I'm using this in a very general sense, suffer from, is that many black preachers don't read. Oh, my. Um, Many black preachers have been taught not to read because people that they look up to don't read Mm -hmm. or because reading is too Mm -hmm. time-consuming. But one thing I've learned is that you can always tell the depth of someone's spirituality, and knowledge by how much they read, not by what kinds of fancy words they're using, but their thought process mm-hmm. always comes out. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think of preparation as a lifelong habit.
1: Right.
2: Uh, getting the seminary degree or certificate is a step, but that is only literally just the beginning. Absolutely. Absolutely. And one has to always be fascinated. It is almost like looking at a diamond Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. taking that diamond up to the light and turning it in its different directions to see the depth of the dimensions in that diamond Mm. and becoming fascinated with that diamond, as if one is fascinated with fire.
1: Mm. And I
2: think once we become fascinated with learning, then that begins to cultivate a lifestyle of lifelong learning. Um, Now, that brings me to this issue of Lagos. And I hope I'm not jumping ahead.
0: No, 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 no. You good? Um, organic, I, man, organic.
2: I, I know we've talked about ethos and pathos. Um, yes, always listening. This is Sister Andrea Hawkins Wallace. Is it Reverend or Minister? If if or is it?
0: She won't. She won't be honest with me. She a member of First Baptist. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. All right. Uh uh-huh.
2: Okay. So you you under uh. A thinking pastor, okay. <laughs> but I agree, uh, Sister Wallace, always listening, always thinking, always reading. It's kind of like that Zen concept of mindfulness. Exactly. If you will. Exactly. You know, um, but I um, I wanted to delve into this issue of Logos because I think Logos, as you said, it deals, yeah, we often think Logos uh, of John 1 and 1. Right. Um in the beginning was a word, the word was God, you know, Jesus being the Logos. I think, however, in John, John in one doesn't make that claim specifically. Nope. <laughs> we infer that. Yep. <laughs> Literarily, <laughs> you know, it makes sense, but John John himself doesn't make that claim. Um there's something philosophical going on with this logos that John is talking about. Right. Um in chapter one. Um and let me not let me not bite the bullet and get stuck there because I want to unpack it, but I'm not. So, but "logos" is one of those words that has a, a surplus of meaning. It is polysemantic, is what we say in biblical studies dealing with words. It has so many different meanings, and it's, it's a word that also is an idiomatic expression, and only the context can determine what the word really means. Exactly. Um, so. But I think Logos deals with really the content of one's, um, um, sermonic claims. It deals with the content that goes into what thus says the Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, in other words, what do, what do we preach? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what do we preach and how do we preach it? Mm-hmm. And to what degree do we preach? Mm-hmm. um, What do we preach, of course, is always what thus says the Lord. But what thus says the Lord has to always be interpreted within the context of one's lived environment that deals with both the social, deals with the economic, the political, and the spiritual and where i'm going with this is i think oftentimes our lagos suffers because it is it it is one sided it's not really not the term i'm looking for but i think it's cheapened let me say that mm-hmm. i think it's cheapened mm-hmm. because the identity and character of the lagos has been exchanged for the identity and character of the Logos that is peddled mm. by white evangelicalism that really doesn't have a stake mm-hmm. in transforming the realities of marginalized cultures. That's right. Right? And so for me, logos really is the content of preaching that helps transform my lived context, which happens to be the black community. I'm in Birmingham, Alabama. I grew up in Pratt City. Mm -hmm. I went to Jackson Olin High School. That's my context, all right? I do ministry in the Bush Hills community and in various other communities in Birmingham, Alabama. But I, I rub shoulders with people who are suffering from the vestiges of racism Mm -hmm. and white supremacy that are deeply rooted. So when I'm tasked with handling logos for proclamation, I can't act as if that stuff does not exist. Right. And as Brian Blunt says, you know, with respect to um, uh, preaching particularly Mark's gospel or reading Mark's gospel Mm -hmm. or reading any kind of synoptic gospel is that the message of Jesus has to have implications that are just as important for Mm. spiritual, for social, and political. And it's not a choosing of any of those three. In fact, there's really no way to separate social, political, or spiritual. Because God doesn't operate separately outside of those realms. In fact, even the uh, first century community in the Gospels... um, the several, the 300 years of the uh, uh, 8th century prophets, um, the, the uh, hundreds of years of the uh, monarchy and the divided monarchy, mm-hmm. all of the issues of policy and, and social interaction and theological claims are all wedded. Mm-hmm. So the moment I say Jesus is Lord That's a highly political statement mm-hmm. That is a social statement It is also a theological claim But I think Logos Suffers Because our contextual Issues that we're facing In the black community Are not fronted And when I say fronted mm-hmm. I mean they're not placed first That's right. So for me Lagos in preaching always deals with social issues. One of the things I hate is this nomenclature of, of social justice preaching because I think the term itself is shade to those who do it mm-hmm. because it's always coming from those who don't necessarily do it or specialize in it. Um, but it acts as if it is something antithetical to preaching in the gospels or in the bible
1: Mm -hmm.
2: justice is a biblical imperative Mm -hmm. it is not a choice right it is something that god requires Mm -hmm. justice Mm
1: -hmm.
2: when i think about this origin of logos with respect to contextualized preaching and justice I think a prime example is Moses, and I know I've been lifting up Moses quite a bit during this session. Um, Maybe that's my subconsciousness telling me that I need to do some work in this area. But it's fascinating, Moses' call in Exodus 3 and 4, when God fascinates him with this phenomena, this burning bush, gives him a message, the message to Moses to take back to the Egyptian empire is highly social.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. He's talking about liberation. Mm -hmm. And then, not only is he talking about liberation, but then model, I'm sorry, but then Moses becomes the model for preaching Mm -hmm. in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Mm -hmm. So the origins of Social justice preaching, or as I like to say, preaching that is highly contextual with just, justice as a biblical imperative undergirding it, has its biblical roots in the model of the one who's attributed to writing the Torah. Mm
1: mm-hmm. hmm. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Okay.
2: Go tell my people, go tell Pharaoh. To let my people go, so that they may worship me. Yeah. See, there's a link here between
1: justice,
2: justice and worship. <laughs> about <that>. Yeah, oppression <laughs> and worship.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, we we talked about this on yesterday. Uh, one of the books that I ordered, and if you, were, you know, if you for real about your craft, you buy your tools. I'm not a mechanic, so I don't buy wrenches or pliers or whatever to pull out teeth. So I don't don't do that. But I got this book, the SCM Dictionary of Third World Theology. You do know that there are people in the world that don't think like Americans. Mm. They don't think like white evangelicals or black folks pretending to be white evangelicals. So when you take a look at it, uh, resources become critical. And in this, I when I first got the book, first came in the mail, the first area I wanted to look at was the area on worship and made it very clear. And I shared with these brothers on yesterday that, that the thing that jumped out to me was the fact that they said that, that authentic worship is found when we are dismantling the empire. You can't lift up the empire and claim that you were engaged in worship. That's called idolatry.
2: Yeah,
0: that simply don't work. Yeah. And what happens is I believe there's a, a lot of idolatry that takes place mm-hmm. in pulpit service. Mm-hmm. A lot, you know, some, some, you know, so let me let me try to press that case on that. That uh, I was talking to Reverend Michael Wilson, uh, who's in Virginia. And we went to seminary together, came up through Shiloh Church under Lee Earl. This is literally my brother in ministry. And we were talking about how irritating it is to hear preachers open their sermons with one or two sentences on an issue and then make a beeline in the opposite direction for the rest of the time they preach. They say one or two sentences, and then they feel that they have done their job. So what they do is they'll say, you know, make sure you go vote. Make sure you fill out your census. And then they begin to move in a direction that takes them away from really wrestling with the issues because in reality they don't want to. But they also recognize that it's a trend today to mention justice. It's not because it's inherently in them. And and we did talk about that whole idea that, that justice is not a genre in the Bible. The Bible is justice. The Bible is written by and written for people that are oppressed to those that are in the diaspora, as James writes. Why are they not living in Jerusalem? You think they just wanted to leave? Why do you think people leave from staying in the country? Because there are no opportunities for you when you get your degree. Now that you have left, guess what you got to do? You got to go find a job. You can't, you can't go back. What Dr. Clark is doing here, he can't do it down there in Louisiana. What 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 I'ma say you know tell your folks that uh, United get mad at what Dr. Billingsley is saying because he, he got he got more he got more than most of these people walking around with their honorary degrees they ought to just stop it. But what but what what Ramon what Dr. Billingsley is sharing is this idea. That in order to authentically declare the logos, hmm. suffering has to be included. There is no, uh, there is no authentic word outside of suffering. What God has called for you to do, if you're going to have a word. It's gonna come out of your experience. This is how Lee Earl explained it to me and Michael. He said, powerful preaching comes from painful places. Mm-hmm. You ain't, you ain't, you ain't listening to Joel Osteen. Joel Osteen can't tell, Joel Osteen cannot preach. And it's not to say that he ain't up doing something. But preaching in his authentic form when you begin to look at preaching preaching is something that comes out of the crucible of your environment it comes it comes it it, it comes out of a situation that you didn't even think that you can get out of and here you are now on top of the world but you remember when you were in the valley Hmm. and the problem that we continue to have is that Many people are arguing that social justice is a subset of preaching, that it ain't the real gospel because you ought to be trying to save folks' souls. Well, salvation is not about going to heaven. It ain't about going to heaven. So salvation is about being rescued using the Moses narrative. Tell Pharaoh to let my people go. To do what? Come worship. That when you are oppressed, it's hard to worship. You really can't. Because you are trying to please your handlers. Mm-hmm. You're not even thinking about God. God becomes one that you think about on Sunday. God becomes that checklist for the week. Okay, I've gone to church. You know, I've, I've satisfied that requirement. But... In satisfying that requirement, what happens is we become hypocrites. I mean, we're not stretching so far in this language away from what we originally talked about. Mm -hmm. That what happens is when, when you are unable to verbally explain your context, you are unable to reach a place where you understand your identity. And that's what this is about. This, this idea of the ethos, the pathos and logos. Uh, all, all this is tied together because you you and I have to really process this one question: Who am I?
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: Who am I? Because if I don't know who I am, I can never be who I'm supposed to be. When you don't know who you are, your isness becomes an illness.
2: Yeah, right, right, right. This is what happens. Yeah,
0: and we begin to not have the good side of pathos. Mm-hmm. We begin to wrestle with the pathology of who am I? Yeah. What is my orientation? Right. You know, you know. Do I need? That? I saw on Amazon the other day uh, pills that can make your skin lighter over in jamaica they got they got skin lightener cream they got it in africa people are ashamed of their skin color they're ashamed of the paint job that god gave them Mm -hmm. not understanding that if you lighten yourself Mm -hmm. you open yourself to poisons and cancers that come from the sun while you living on the equator Instead of allowing your natural melanin to keep you protected. It's a paint of coating for your protection, but because you want the job. Because you want the husband. And guess what? When you had a child, guess what? Skin color your child don't have. Skin, Skin lightness don't work on your genetics. I mean, these are the kind of things that that we've got to begin to look at because we are doing skin lighteners in our churches. Yeah. We're not we're not dealing with the issues. We ain't talking to the people that we need to talk to. Instead, we are we are saying, "Preach us happy, preach us into heaven." He didn't hoot. He didn't say anything. He 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 didn't get me emotionally charged. Yeah, but when you leave there, there's a story about God and the tailor. Said Gardner Taylor uh, had a guy and his wife come to this church. Husband had been the one going, wife wasn't convinced. And went and heard Dr. Gardner Taylor preach. And she left there absolutely unimpressed. Hmm. Got back home. He heard some dishes dropping. She in there shouting. Hmm. He asked her, What's wrong? What happened to you? She said, I just understood what he said. <laughs> it wasn't the hooping. He got into her hand. He got into her heart and she could not stop thinking about it and then all of a sudden, it clicked. It
2: clicked. Yeah.
0: That's what it does.
2: Yeah. Dr. Claw. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm... yeah I'm... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, I wasn't ready for that
1: but you know, you know I think that worship itself entails an aspect of our both emotions mm. as well as it does the logos or the logic or the appeal to our intellectual uh, component as people right? Mm. Yeah. So if you teach a man how to fish he can survive Mm-hmm. If you give him a fish, he'll be hungry again within hours.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Right? So mm-hmm. I often say that church sometimes becomes the community's habitual fix mm-hmm. for all the week instead of it being the primordial context for teaching people how to throw out their own nets. Right? Right? Right. So when you're able and skilled. In thinking in alignment with the Word of God, then even if you can't make it to church on Sunday, which you should yeah. for the betterment and for the uplift and for the, um, um, the care of the community itself, mm-hmm. you ought to still be able to draw upon the Word of God in your own personal time and span of devotion every day. Yeah. So, you know, I say this, right? So I think that the church ought to be a, and it it is in my assessment, the church is a microcosm Mm -hmm. of its community at large. Mm -hmm. So if you're not coming to church to have some aspect of life, Shown upon your situation yeah. mm. as you experience it and encounter it
0: every day. Yeah. So right. what a travesty! What, yeah. uh, what an affront mm-hmm. and an assault yeah. to wow. our
1: communities to get sermons from David Jeremiah, who lives in a gated community, mm. <laughs> to get sermons from yeah. uh, white evangelical pastors who live in gated communities.
0: Yeah. My God, who do
1: not know pain as we know it. Mm-hmm. The one mm-hmm. thing that is consistent within the life of people of color who have the benefit of melanin to inhabit or to color their skin is that we all know pain. Yeah, is it? Yeah. And the similarity of pain that you are familiar with ain't in any way different from the shade of pain that I deal with. Yeah. You may be living <laughs> in a gated community. Man? Yeah. And maybe nobody in your home has been impacted by police brutality yet. But hmm. you would always tell me, but keep on retiring in the evening, <laughs> saying good evening, keep on getting up in the morning, saying good morning. Yeah. You know, one thing that this administration has taught us is irrespective of your zip code. Mm-hmm. Yep. A black person yeah. is a black person. That's right. Is a black person. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, white supremacy is ubiquitous. It is everywhere. Mm-hmm. And America would not be America without white supremacy. Yeah. Let mm. me say this. I think yeah. Yeah. Trenton said something. I wanted to just kind of, I, I really was unsure if it was a statement or a question, but I believe it was a statement in terms of. There's a difference between uh, sacrifices and offerings with Cain, Abel, and Abraham, mm-hmm. and the altars uh, and Exodus. Yeah, right? worship and Exodus. Worship in Exodus, yeah. right? And I think, as you said, in terms of what Brian K. Blunt has said, you know, you know, it, it, the way in which God wished. Uh-huh. for his community to remain such mm-hmm. was to have them to understand that he is God by way of imploring him uh-huh. through practices that solidified their thought and their thinking about who was at the root mm-hmm. of their exodus. Yeah, right, yeah,
2: yeah. And it
1: doesn't just get highlighted in exodus. Yeah, yeah. You know, this thought, this, this, this inseparate nature of evil, started early in Genesis. Mm
0: -hmm. Indeed. Yeah. And
1: when it happened, it was it was not as if it was unknown to any. Right. And they were like, listen, we had an idea place. Right? But this place now has become in some way Mm -hmm. unlike what it was or unlike what it was intended to be Jonathan, right. was we yeah. talk about the yeah. aspect of paradise being lost.
0: Right, yeah, right. Because yeah. if
1: you're black, you ain't <laughs> never
0: had it. <laughs> it <ain't. laughs> so she you She says come already in here lost. Fighting. Yeah.
1: <laughs> you come in here looking for something uh, to which you can grab hold of. Yeah. To yeah. keep living. Yeah. And the one thing that we've always had the benefit of holding on to is this anchor. Mm. This anchor in God. Mm. Now you can do like some of us have done. Go to school and think that you get too smart. Right, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. But you'll soon yeah. be confronted with the reality. Oh yeah. That without God.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: I yeah. can't do nothing. That's it. <laughs> and without God. Yeah. I would fail. My life would be sinking and stinking. Yeah. Mm. Just like a sh- <laughs> ship. <shield. laughs> oh, Jesus. Without a ship. But listen, <laughs> listen, man, if the preacher does that, I think, I'm done. I think church, <laughs> the pulpit has always been a place for redeeming people out of the squalor mm. of white supremacy. Yeah. And instead of us redeeming people out of the squalor of white supremacy, Here we push black people are compounded by preaching that does not address the ill the ills yeah. of
2: their yeah. isness. Yeah, yeah. Mm. The ills of their isness.
1: Like you said. Yeah. The community know who they are.
0: They so no do.
1: It's the black preacher who don't know who he is. Yeah, yeah. And if you is who you ain't, then you ain't
0: who you is. So you better discover who you are. I love that. I'm sorry. I love that. But don't apologize for telling the truth. I mean, what you got, man? (laughs) I'm
1: sorry, I was supposed to be commenting. No, man. You did?
2: I don't even know how to my foot in that terrain um i can say as i'm listening at this discussion i am reminded of uh, or it comes to mind that this pandemic has created circumstances in which clergy have had to grow up oh my they've had to mature very quickly with respect to how Lagos is cooked, how it is served and disseminated. Mm. Um, I am reminded of several conversations I've had that have encouraged me with clergy who have traditionally not um, tried their hand at a mirror reading of scripture. Mm. And I'm using that, that term to say, reading scripture through the African American context. Having said that before I unpack that a little bit more, I'll just tell you something about myself. It's, it's implicit when you hear me talk, but I think how you approach the biblical text also has an ethical component too. Mm -hmm. And I think as a black proclaimer, that ethically speaking, if we approach a biblical text, whether it be a parable, a narrative, a prophetic genre or a wisdom saying, whatever it may be. But if we approach a text without bringing the concerns of the the African-American community, then I think we have done a disjustice, we've done injustice to our community, Mm -hmm. to our parishioners. That means that oftentimes we cannot necessarily start with a text Mm Because you can't come to a text dry Mm -hmm. expecting the text to fill an empty whale. Mm. We're dealing with texts that were not written for us. They were not written to address our concerns or our community. That is a historical fact. Mm -hmm. Paul did not know anything about Birmingham, Alabama. He didn't know anything about the United States of America. Mm. He didn't even know about our current disaster that we have in the White House. Paul didn't know any of this, and even with his great spiritual discernment, his letters that he wrote were situational letters. I mean, he simply wrote about what was going on in his context. Mm -hmm. The same thing with many of the stories that we see throughout the Hebrew Bible that Mm -hmm. recur over and over again. These stories are readapted, And they are adapted and they're updated to deal with the concern of the community. So, Mm -hmm. like so, with the biblical text. Me, my hermeneutic is such that the number one concerns that I bring to a biblical text are the concerns that I am facing as a black man in America Mm -hmm. and concerns that my uh, people are facing. That's first okay and so i bring that lens to the biblical text and i read it in such a way that this text then moves from being an ancient relic in the past where i have to go through all kinds of hermeneutical and exegetical uh hoops and turns to bring out some kind of dead meaning for a community that i don't even know really existed mm-hmm. okay and so there's something mysterious that happens when I bring my lens of being a black male in the, in America to a reading of a text. There, there's something that happens with that text, and there's something that happens with my experience, coupled with a Holy Ghost fire. Yeah, I say Holy Ghost. Oh, oh my. I, I had to go back to your roots sometimes, sure. despite what. What training you got? There's something that happens with this trilogy, this triumvirate if you will, of my experience this ancient text, this relic of the past and this Holy Ghost that marries and cohabitates long enough to produce what thus says the Lord. Mm. And I think that is the kind of logos that is going to help redeem our black pulpits and also reauthorize and re-legitimate the black church. Mm. Because we've abdicated our responsibility. Now I know there are various facets of that, different facets of black church, but in a general sense, we have abdicated our our Mm -hmm. sense of let me just say we've abdicated our calling and mission. Yeah.
1: Mm.
2: Yeah. So, I'm encouraged that there are clergy that I'm hearing and seeing mm-hmm. who are actually trying their hand at this. Mm-hmm. And there's one person I know in particular whose, whose preaching has totally changed, not just in response to the pandemic, but because now... He's able to do what seminary told him not to do, white seminaries. That is, you don't read into a text. You don't bring your experience to the text. You come to a text objective as if the text itself is objective. There's no such thing as an objective reading of scripture. Everything is, has some kind of ideological or political agenda. Right. I give you a case in point: First 1 Samuel chapter 8. Elders come to Samuel because they have a legitimate problem. Yep. And that problem is that Samuel's sons are not administering justice in the gate. They're taking bribes and doing everything else. And when the elders talk to Samuel, Samuel takes it personally. Yep. He doesn't really take the time to empathize with the elders who are speaking on behalf of a larger community. Mm-hmm. And apparently this had happened more than once because the elders come with a plan. Give us a king. Because you're unfit. Yep. And so are your boys. Yep. And what does Samuel do? He rushes off, has a hissy fit, gets his his ego bruised. He never talks to the boys. He never writes the wrong with the people. He never writes the wrong with the elders. Nope. He goes, he has a conversation with God. And the way the Deuteronomistic historian fashions this conversation. Oh my. <laughs> Here I said that. <laughs> Goes back to what you said about how scripture's written. Mm. Fashions this conversation to then put the blame on the people. Yep. You want a king, this is what a king's gonna do. Nice. He's gonna take your boys, he's gonna take your, your girls, you know, he's gonna take your land, your fields, and all this. That's what he's gonna do. He's gonna take your money, he's gonna levy taxes on you. What happened to the point that the issue at hand? We don't have justice. Right. What's going to be done about that? Right. And that concern gets lost. Oh, That's a perfect example of how Scripture has its own agenda. <laughs> Biblical text writers have its own agenda, and the narrator has his, his own rhetorical strategy that is designed to win you over. But sometimes you've got to not be afraid to do what, is it Michael Foucault says? To deconstruct the text. Yep. To resist the text. Yeah, because you do know Israel was colonized, if you will, but it was also a colonizer. That's right. <laughs>
0: That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah.
2: yeah. How do you have a temple in Jerusalem, but not one in the Northern Kingdom? Oh my. And then Jeroboam one comes along and decides to put shrines at Dan and Bethel. Uh Because everybody can't get down to Jerusalem, but then it's called what? Apostasy. Yeah. Well, you know. How are you gonna centralize worship when everybody can't get down to Jerusalem temple? Can't get there. Huh? Yeah.
0: Okay. You know that's that's
2: Old Testament see, one.
0: See, God. see, see. <laughs> you said so much, man. You talk about you didn't know how to deal with the terrain that Kurt left. My goodness, y'all excuse me. I got to take my shoes off to walk in this one. <laughs> shoes gonna make me slip. So I got to take my. I got to. I got to take my foot off of this holy ground, <laughs> man. You talked about how preaching is. Contextual. Mm-hmm. But while you were saying that, it came to me that all theological writing
2: yeah.
0: is contextual. Yes, sir. See, this is why hypocrisy makes no sense to me. I can't keep reading John MacArthur and trying to make John MacArthur's context my context. Correct. Charles Stanley may be over in Atlanta, but Charles Stanley has a different context. It it might be in the South, but it's different. I can't can't read your theological writings Mm -hmm. and then say, okay, how do I make it fit into my life? Because you haven't said anything about me. What I used to do, and I I don't do it no more, is After I have finished preparing the sermon at Virginia Union, they prepare you to at least be able to preach. You you might not be a thinker, but you can get up and you know how to put together a sermon. You can do all that. But I used to go after I finished everything. And I wanted to see how angry I would get. I would read a Matthew Henry commentary on the text that I'm dealing with. (laughs) Because I know he ain't going to deal with, at the time he's writing, the racism Mm -hmm. that's taking place, Mm -hmm. the oppression, Mm -hmm. the justification that God put us in this position. I mean, because, you know, this is where having a good, basic understanding of history really comes in. Because they will tell you, that I'm here because this is where God put us, mm-hmm. and they'll do it through their myths, yeah. and in their myths of the Plymouth, you know, mm-hmm. Plymouth Rock, they will they will have their myths yeah. that this was God's will, when in reality they were being kicked out of Europe. Yeah. yeah. And so what happens is the worst of the worst, the 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 most degradating, debased individuals they had in Europe, they put them on the boat and sent them over here. Those are your founding fathers. Yeah. Your founding fathers are the rejects from Britain. Yeah. They aren't from the upper class. They aren't from the group that actually ran everything. These were the vagabonds on the street. Hmm. These were the ones that couldn't make it. So their context, Yeah. and you would think that if they had gone through oppression, hmm. that they'll be able to Write in such a way to let other folk know, hey, my, my family heritage, mm-hmm. I've come from this. Mm-hmm. But instead, they've divorced themselves and based everything on skin color, yeah. when in reality, it's their theological writing that we've got to put in a proper context.
1: Yeah.
0: I know Chris Well was a hypocrite, mm-hmm. yeah, but I also know that he said something in his book that made sense. Mm. He said, You ought to eat up the meat and chew up. No, throw out the bones. Mm-hmm. He said, and you should not. He's talking about preparing the sermon. He said, you shouldn't use the same bone mm. the whole year mm. to flavor the meat, to flavor the uh, uh, broth for yeah. your cooking. <laughs> the problem is we got too many preachers that are using the same bone. The same bone. They ain't getting no new fresh meat. So mm, so yes. what, what came to me was when you began talking about you know the, you no know, the 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 text got motives.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Goes right back to what Ross taught us. Who got an axe to grind?
2: Yeah, come on, that's it.
0: Who got an axe to grind in the text?
2: Yeah.
0: Because what you can't afford to do is you can't afford to go to the text as if you are a blank sheet. Mm-hmm you're bringing your zits label. You're, yeah. you're bringing your setting in life, how you have lived, what you have gone through. You bring all that to the text. Yeah. You don't allow that to sit somewhere else and you divorce yourself from your experience. Why? Because even your reading of the text is done within a particular context. That's right. And so while you have in Israel literally two stories, you got the northern story and uh-huh. the southern story. Absolutely. In the northern story, yeah. uh, 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 Aaron is the man. Yeah. Aaron is the big dog. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Southern story, mm-hmm. which has survived, mm-hmm. is Moses. Mm-hmm. So when you start looking at it, yeah, yeah, you know, you Absolutely. know, Aaron is the good guy in the north. Moses is the good guy in the south. Which means if you flip it, yeah. The North ain't thinking too highly of Moses. <laughs> and the South ain't thinking too highly of Aaron. Yes, sir. And yet, they come out of the same context, mm-hmm. but how people were treated. Yeah. How people were treated goes into how they not only write the text, but how they tell the story in order to, to explain the text. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing with us. There are just certain, certain individuals I can't stomach. When I was supervisory uh, chaplain at the Bureau, when I first came in, first came in as a brand new chaplain, we had another chaplain. I had to unfriend him on Facebook, so I really don't care. <laughs> he used to get mad at me because when we would take turns, there were three Protestant chaplains. So everybody couldn't preach every week. So one week it'll be chaplain back then, the other week it'll be this other one, and then it'll be me. He would get mad when folks wouldn't come to hear him preach. Hmm. And he wouldn't get mad at them. He get mad at me. Wow. Because before I got there, they'll come. And what happened is they heard something different. Hmm. They didn't hear yeah. the condensation. They didn't hear the condemning. They didn't hear the attacking. Yeah. I remember him saying one time that I need to hide my wallet because we got some folks in here that steal your identity. Oh, goodness. And I'm sitting there like, what in the hell does that have to do with the sermon? Yeah. What does This yeah. is on Easter Sunday.
2: Oh, gosh.
0: What, what, what's it got to do? Wow. But he didn't preach with notes. He just got up and just started talking. And he wonder why his stuff always went off the rail. <laughs> Great administrator, because that's what they hire you for. But you ain't nobody's preacher. And here I am coming out of my context, and the first thing I say to him, I said, y'all want to know the difference between me and you? <laughs> you got caught. <laughs> Guess what? That changed everything. Wait a minute. He telling me that he probably did some of the stuff. Yeah, you got caught. I did
2: it.
0: <laughs> I said but let me help you where you are. <laughs> and at that point the context changes. Yeah, right. And so now the pathos can make sense. Absolutely. Now the logos is received. Now the ethos is absolutely respected and it's like I want to be like you. Right. It becomes it, it because now it's now all working together. Mm-hmm. But it it it, it it fits perfectly because one does not deny their context mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and when we deny our context we lose relevancy yeah. in every other con- in, in every other aspect yeah. and some people don't like the whole be who you is because it's so-called grammatically incorrect <laughs> but as i learned it's theologically sound oh yeah good deal So I don't care about your grammar. I can I can deal with folks with bad grammar. I have a hard time dealing with people with bad theology, especially when you lie in images. Thinking about last week, this whole idea of your images, you know, you know, one of the books that I got, and I think it's going to become my holy grail. You know, you know, I had another one, uh, but this one I think is now going to become my holy grail. Your holy grail? This one, mine. The Black Messiah. By Albert Clay, the pastor who started the Church of the Black Madonna in Detroit, Michigan. And what he says in here is absolutely uncompromising. He's not apologizing apologizing for his context. So I read this. And then I read this as a reference. Then I read what Brian Blunt, because that's the other book that we all read You know, you just start looking at the plethora. And I told him, hey, bring what you're reading and talk about what you're getting ready to read. You know why? Because there are some who are watching that don't know what to read. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's where we come in. So, man, y'all show y'all stuff. We got to go get something to eat. We got to get out of here. Show them what you're reading. Tell tell them what you're reading. Talk about it. And man, uh, we're going to get this podcast loaded up and we're going to pray that the Lord God treats you real good.
2: <laughs> well, tell us about Blunt's book if you don't mind. Yeah, so we're all reading um, <clears throat> this book by Brian Blunt. It was published, I once said, in '94. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called Go Preach Mark's Kingdom Message and the Black Church Today. You might think, based on the title, that it's a book about preaching, um, but it's really not. It's really a book about how do you read Mark's gospel
0: um, Mm -hmm.
2: uncovering issues of empire um, but mainly how does the message of Mark's gospel um, relate to the black church community Mm -hmm. and he really uses uh, sociolinguistics which is a method um, that he uses quite a bit and writes a lot about um, to get to the heart of the matter here. It's a fascinating book. I first learned about this book through Dr. William Myers when I was in my yep. master's program Yep. and um, just ordered a new copy. I saw Dr. Clark reading it and um, forgot how good this is. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is part of my canon and it will be for the next uh, quarter. Um, another book that I'm reading is uh, a new publication. It's called Sin and its Remedy and Paul. And it's edited by uh, one of my colleagues, Nijay Gupta, who's at Northern Seminary, a professor of the New Testament, and then David DeSilva Silva has an article in here, too. Um, I'm reading mm. this because I have been thinking a lot about the issue of sin theologically and just been vexed um, uh, with um, the, the Sunday school approach to how we talk about sin. Mm-hmm. Um, and just felt the need to dive more into the topic. And so I'm starting with this, um, this um, particular book. And then the other book I'm using is more homiletic-oriented, Paul Scott Wilson, Four Pages of the Sermon. Mm-hmm. I discovered this book probably about, I don't know, seven, eight years ago, adopted the method, and um, then went on to another method, and then recently decided to pull that method back out. Um, mainly because I've changed a lot. My theology is just constantly growing, and Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about the issue of a narrative approach to preaching. Remember, when we say narrative, people think, think about preaching full of stories. No, it's just the narrative structure, where preaching is always centered around some kind of plot, some kind of colonial condition, mm-hmm. you know, that the proclaimer is uh, addressing, and then some kind of post-colonial reimagination of what the community could look like. So these are three of my canon, three three installments in my canon mm-hmm. <laughs> um, right now. And we generally will read multiple books, that, you know, simultaneously. Yep. Um, so mm. I'll let Dr. Clark... <laughs> Oh, okay. All
0: right, <laughs> let me um let me go back to the four pages. Okay. Um, I had to go. I think I went down to Tallahassee. I think that was a weekend. The thing was that Sunday you came and preached for me. Okay. I had to go down to Tallahassee. My my pastor and uh, my home church in um Florida was celebrating a hundred and forty nine years. He was celebrating thirty seven years at Bethel. And so I asked, you know, Dr. Billingsley, I said, hey, man, I need you to come preach for me. He said, okay. I get back home. I asked my daughter, teenager at the time, 14 years old. I said, baby, I said, how's the sermon on Sunday? She started rattling it off. I was like, you remember it? She said, yeah. I don't, okay, so at that point, I don't need to talk to her. I want to know what he preached. And I also, after he told me what he preached, the first, the second question I asked him was, what method did you use? And he said, well, I used this method called the four pages of the sermon. I said, well, I ain't never heard of that. He showed me the book. Lo and behold, one of the people that recommended it is our homiletics professor at Virginia <laughs> Union, James Henry Harris. I don't care who else got something to say about it. I gotta learn this. If James Harris recommends it, I said, okay, I'm gonna have to take a look at it. So, I go ahead and look at his book. He, you know, Ramon began to explain, you know, know, the trouble in the text, the trouble in the world, the grace in the text, the grace in the world. And I'm like, that easy? I said, ain't no points? He said, well, no, it's kind of points embedded in and you know, it's different way. So, needless to say, I bought the book. And once I got it, I said, yeah, I'm going, I'm going to learn this. And so, since December of last year, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. since December of last year, I've been going through this book, and I'm telling you, it is one of the easiest methods to understand, but it's one of the more complex methods to try to implement because for those of us that are heavy in dealing with justice issues, mm-hmm. trouble in the text and trouble in the world, yeah. we got that on lock. Yeah. But when it comes to dealing with the grace in the text mm-hmm. and the grace in the world, yeah. how do you lift up the good news in order to give people? And the thing I love about it is that you can work on a section a day. Yeah, yeah. It ain't all at one time. It ain't all you go all in on one day and you write everything. No, no. Today uh, I'm actually going to be working on the trouble in the world. <laughs> Yesterday I dealt with the trouble in the text. Yeah. I did my outline, got my outline lined up, the piece for my introduction, and I went ahead and did the trouble in the text. You don't wait until Saturday, Saturday night special. Yeah. No. Oh. And I and I actually work on <laughs> actually work on my Bible study. <laughs> Weeks in advance from something that I picked up from Dr. Clark. I don't work on a new study. I take what I've already preached. Yeah. Because there's still so much there that yeah. I didn't even get to on Sunday. That's my Wednesday night Bible study. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I got that and I got the Brian Blunt book. Yeah. Um, And so I don't have the other book that just came out, but because... You know, Dr. Silver got something in there. I'm really going to have to get it <laughs> so I can take a look at it because uh, he is, you know, with, with Ashland. That's why I got my doctorate. So I got to make sure I take a look at that. Uh, but, yeah, Dr. Myers introduced us to that Brian Blunt book. Yeah. So, you know, so, you know, I mean, it's this is a very practical read. Mm-hmm. And it makes you look at Mark through a different lens. You begin yeah. to really appreciate mm-hmm. Mark. Some people just love John. Or they love Matthew, or they appreciate Luke. Yeah. Man, Mark don't get enough love. I think. Yeah. I think you know when you go through this, you begin to see it, and then to see how he uses it in sermons. Yeah, is is extremely um, is extremely helpful. But uh, got these two books. But the book that I'm waiting to read now, that I have at the house, and I have not started it yet, is Black Suffering. It's the newest book by James Cone, who uses an ethnographic approach Mm -hmm. by telling the stories of people suffering and how they were able to overcome. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you got to hear somebody else's story to know that if it's possible for them, it's possible for you. And so I'm going through these. This is my new reference book. And it it has blessed me... uh, just by being able to take a look and see how people in the world, because I think in America, we talk about white supremacy.
2: Yeah.
0: The issue isn't white supremacy. The Marquis reflecting on it. The issue is colonialism. Yeah. And we're still dealing with the vestiges mm-hmm. of colonialism right. that we have identified as white supremacy.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And so looking at, looking at the... The recapturing of the language. Mm -hmm. Because if you name something, you literally can't control it. When you take a look at these these theologians that have written about everything that's viewed from a third world perspective and and black folks in America, we're living in a third world in America. Now, I know some folks don't want to believe that. But when you read how they interpret that, When you read how they understand it through their context, it's the recapturing of words that now you can apply different meaning to. And so, you know, getting you some good resources like this, getting you a good lectionary, getting you a good uh, thesaurus, Mm -hmm. Bible thesaurus, and stop using Webster to define biblical words. Please. Please. Please stop doing that because what you're doing is you're shortening. Uh, you know, Dr. Business already told you that logos can be explained in a various ways of context. But if you go and look it up in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, guess what, what you got? Maybe one definition. And then you try to make that apply. That's not the tip. Get you something that you can do some major research in and become comfortable reading what you're not comfortable reading. That's how you grow. Mm -hmm. Dr. Clark.
1: (laughs) I'm reading what they are reading. (laughs) and uh, I'm ordering on tomorrow a new copy of Albuquerque's book, Black Messiah. I don't know what happened to my book. Probably somebody borrowed it. Let me put it
0: in my bag. uh, I don't trust preachers around books.
1: Albuquerque's book back in my uh, library. It's... uh, Uh, It's a must-have in the library of our community. Yeah. And so, you know, um, one thing about reading is that I was told when I was writing at Colgate, I was told when I was writing that, you know, and I learned, not simply because I'm an English undergraduate major, but I learned you start to write how you read. So if people have a problem with writing, just overcome that with supplement your challenge of writing with reading. And you'll start to write in a way that is similar to how authors right. write. So listen, we've had a great time today. And um, yeah, as Cutting Edge has said, get the books. Brian K. Block will blow your mind. It's amazing how people preach these words off a biblical page, but they are not coming they're not coming to a place of understanding the purpose of those words. Right. The intent of those words. And the myriad of possibilities of those words. I always say no black preacher, no black church needs to hear another thou shalt not sermon. Right. We need to hear more possibilities. Yes. More man. ways in which we can have uplift in our reality. And uh, we we'll look, we'll look forward to seeing you all next week. Until then, uh, let's see. Um, Eva, you're taking my chair next week. So uh, be prepared. Peace. <laughs> I gotta get suits.